This is Doing Translational Research, a podcast from the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research in the College of Human Ecology at Cornell University. Thanks for joining us today on Doing Translational Research. My name is Chris Wildeman. I am director of the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research, and I am usually the host of this, although sometimes we find someone better. Um, so I'm here today with Vanessa Bonds, yep. which I'm only lightly mispronouncing, it sounds like, <laughs> no, based right. on what you told me before. Um, Vanessa is an associate professor in the Department of Organizational Behavior in the School of Industrial and Labor Relations here at Cornell. Um, her research focuses broadly on social influence and the psychology of compliance and consent, which is what your BCTR talk in a couple of weeks is um, is going to be on. That's right. I believe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and in particular, she examines the extent to which people recognize the influence they have over others in various interpersonal interactions. Um, okay. So thanks for joining us. Excited about having you here. Um, Thank you. Tell me. I, um, Tell me maybe a little bit about, give me a little preview of the talk um, that you're going to give, which I am also going to attend. This isn't my, like, um, I'm going <laughs> to spend two minutes. Version. Yeah, yeah. It's, I, it's not me spending two minutes instead of 75. Um. <laughs> um, yeah, so I'll be talking about my research, which has kind of spanned the past decade, where I've looked at this question of whether we recognize the influence we have over other people. Um, And that can mean a couple of things. It can mean whether or not we recognize our ability to get people to do things for us if we need them to do something. Uh, It can also mean our ability to recognize when people are doing things not of their own volition, but because they feel like we want them to or because we've asked them to. Um, And it'll kind of go through the progression of my research, which started looking at pro-social requests that people are more likely to help us out when we ask them than we think that they are. Um, but also kind of um, has become, I think, a little bit more interesting in in looking at the flip side of that, where people are also more likely to do, for example, unethical things for us than we expect them to, and they feel more uncomfortable rejecting our romantic advances than we think they might. Um, And this is all through this underlying mechanism that we don't realize how hard it is for people to say no to us, and that can be a good thing if we need help, and it can be a bad thing if we're asking people to do things they don't really want to do. Okay. And can can you maybe talk a little bit about sort of the methods you use to investigate these questions? And especially, I mean, I, I, I recall that we had some discussions at some point about you not using college students for these sorts of experiments, like you were looking for a community sample. And so mm-hmm. it'd be great to hear you talk a little bit um, about that component of things, too. Sure, absolutely. Um, well, A lot of my methods are kind of this hybrid of laboratory and field methods um, where really we bring people into the lab just to send them back out of it Mm. and to ask people for things. And so it really started uh, out when we were looking at help requests where we were really kind of asking people to do the exact thing we were interested in. So we would bring people into the lab, we would have them go out and ask people for things. So we'd say, okay, go out onto campus and ask someone if you can borrow their cell phone Mm -hmm. and then call us back at the lab if you get them to do it. Um, Or go out onto campus and ask someone if they'll take you to the gym and say that you can't find it. Uh, And so they would guess how many people they would have to ask until someone would agree to that. They'd go out and do it, keep track of how many people they had to ask and 
we found time and again that people thought that it was going to be a much more difficult task than it wound up being. And these are strangers that they're asking? So, or? yeah, they we started out only looking at strangers. So they would have to go onto campus, and these were college students at first, and they would ask people on campus uh, who they didn't know these kinds of requests. Um, and I, the first time we sort of wanted to make sure that this wasn't uh, sort of a contrived finding, that it's only because these people wouldn't actually be asking these things, um, and we're kind of forcing mm. them to mm -hmm. ask it in this laboratory uh, paradigm. Uh, the first time we wanted to, to sort of rule that out, we wound up partnering with Team and Training, which is part of uh, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, and mm. they basically have volunteers come, uh, participate in a race, and ask people to sponsor them for that race. And so we, we decided to team up with them and look at people who were actually already signed up to do this. They were going to make this ask anyway. They were going to ask people for donations. And in that case, it was a combination of stra strangers and people they knew. Um, and in that case, we asked them before they went and, and made these requests how many people they thought they would need to ask before they met their fundraising mm -hmm. goals, which were usually in the thousands of dollars. Um, and then we had them keep track and report back to us uh, at the end and tell us how many people they actually had to ask. And we found the exact same thing, that they thought this was going to be this really overwhelming task, and they only had to ask about half the people they thought they were initially going to have to ask. Cool. Um, so do you, do you work on interventions too, or is it primarily documenting sort of how people respond to these requests one way or the other? Yeah, we haven't worked on interventions yet, so it's mostly just documenting this and showing people that they have this bias to underestimate the likelihood that other people will agree to the things that they ask. Um, some people have suggested that actually just doing the task is an in intervention uh, in itself. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's uh, this uh, game, I think it's called the rejection game, that I've heard of before. Someone's written a book about it and given a TED Talk. Hmm. Um, and it's basically this game that you can do that some of my participants told me about initially that is supposed to be this intervention. So someone else in the real world has sort of recognized that this is a problem. And they basically, every day you pick a card and it tells you, ask someone to do this crazy thing. Yeah. And people go out and do it. And according to this individual who made the game, they're super surprised by how many people agree to do this thing. Hmm. And what, how are they supposed to respond to that information? <laughs> there, so the idea is to sort of, <laughs> gets you to care less about rejection. So one of the main sort of takeaways from my research is that people don't ask for things that they probably should, mm. and that can contribute to all sorts of things. Like, for example, the gender wage gap has mm. by some people been attributed to the fact that women just don't ask, that in part men are asking for raises, and that's why they're getting more raises, and so you see this kind of uh, you know wage gap. Um, so one of the reasons women potentially might not ask and why people don't ask for things otherwise is because they're afraid of rejection. And so kind of overcoming that fear of rejection, realizing that it doesn't happen as much as you think and that mm -hmm. it's, does, it's not as bad as you think will get people to ask for things uh, that they need more often. Ah, huh, very cool. And, and have you, what, what participants have you worked with or are there other community organizations you've worked with? as you've been doing this kind of work? So it's interesting that I really, the team and training examples, the only time I actually have worked with uh, a non-academic organization. Mm. Um, although now, I think the conversation you were referring to uh, earlier 
it kind of looks at another area that my research has gone into, and this is looking at those either unethical requests or, um, mm. you know, other kinds of requests and kind of looking at the question of consent. So if people find it hard for you to say, or hard to say no to other people, and as an outsider or the person doing the asking, we don't recognize that. That has all sorts of implications for consent and how we interpret consent. Um, from either when we're asking people to do things that they don't want to do and mm. when we see other people agreeing to do things that maybe they didn't want to do. So one area that we've looked at consent within is police voluntary consent. Mm. And so, you know, most people think you need a warrant, that the police need a warrant to search someone. But in fact, if they ask you and you say yes, yeah. they can search you and they can use that, you know, in, in a court. Um, and so... When, when you look at the data, pretty much no one says no to the police, even though it's within your rights to say no, yeah. right? Um, and so we wanted to look at, do people realize how sort of coercive the experience feels to someone when you're being asked by the police to search you? So we have these studies that we've done in the lab, um, and I will bring it back to your point about looking for <laughs> somewhere for a community sample, but in the lab we've looked at... Um, We've asked people to search their phones, so we bring them into the lab and we say, will you unlock your phone and hand it to us so we can look through it? Please tell me no one says yes. <laughs> so we add, well, there's two conditions. We either say, we're going to run a study like this. Would you say yes? And in that case, most people say they would, they would say no, right? Because it feels inappropriate. Most people don't want to do this. Yeah. And then in our other condition, we actually ask people to do this. And over 90% of people turn over their phone. Just unlock their phone, hand it over to us. We walk out of the room with it. Really? And, yeah. Sometimes we come back and they're standing up like, what did I just do? <laughs> Sorry, my nine-year-old's like prime joy in this life is unlocking my phone and moving it somewhere else. It drives me insane. So the idea of letting anyone else do that is <laughs> totally impossible to me. Okay, anyway. Yeah, so we've sort of, we've run these studies and the idea, the hope is to sort of extrapolate mm -hmm. this to a police search context, of course, mm -hmm. um, where, you know, people are saying, well, if, I, if you voluntarily consented to let the police search this, it should be admissible. Right, when people who actually do this, if no one says no, and they don't feel like they can say no, is that really voluntary consent? Um, and so we're kind of exploring this question, and one of the sort of questions that comes out of this is, is this, again, just part of the you know experimental context that we're finding this, or would this actually happen in mm -hmm. the real world? Uh, and so we have, we've asked people to um, guess how many people would comply to like a police search in the real world, and they also underestimate the number of people who do. But um, we would really like to actually talk to people in the community who have consented to searches like this and, and just talk to them about how it felt and whether it felt like a free and voluntary action to consent. And that's where I started sort of exploring where the communities that, um, where we could talk to people who mm. might disproportionately be affected by these requests to be searched. It's all coming back to me now. <laughs> So I guess one, I mean, this sounds like it's a little bit outside of your area of research, but I'm sure it's something you've thought about a bunch. So um, so in this specific context, police officers will have gotten very used to people consenting. Mm -hmm. And so do you, do you have a sense of how people respond when they've gotten used to a specific type of response and then there's like a rapid shift in that response so like if there was an intervention um 
in a highly policed community and half as many people consented to be searched within like a month period or something how to how do you think correctional officers would respond to that or do mm. you have a sense uh, so I have two responses to that question. One is that I think that people don't necessarily get as used to that as we might think. Huh, okay. So we actually, um, we wrote an article about this for the New York Times and I posted it on Twitter and someone who was a cop for a long time responded and said, I could never get used to the idea that people would just let me search their car and they'd have all this cocaine in it or they'd have <laughs> all this, you know, these things, all sorts of things that you obviously wouldn't want a police officer to find and they would just agree. And so he said he was really surprised by that. So it's possible that people are continually surprised by this. Mm. Um, but the other sort of side of it is in terms of if there were to be an intervention, you're sort of implying that the intervention would be to get people to say no more often. Mm. And I don't know that that's necessarily the best intervention. And that's actually one huh. of the challenges that we faced when trying to get into a community sample because one of the ideas was, oh, we'll share our data with you, we'll tell you about the research, blah, blah, blah. And some of the community members were like, is it actually you know, a good idea to tell people to say no to the police uh -huh. more often, you yeah. know, maybe that could put them in danger. And so it might not be the best intervention. And actually, when I think about um, the place where this would apply most or the people I would most want to know about this finding, it would be people like judges and lawyers and people yeah. who are bringing cases to court that say, you know, my client didn't feel like they could have said no, they agreed, but in fact, they felt coerced. Mm -hmm. And you know, often what happens is judges will ask questions like, were guns drawn? Did they ask politely? And these kinds of very um, external, obvious kinds of questions about like, was this coercion or was it not? Yeah. When there's something just basic about being asked, even politely by a police officer, you know, wearing a uniform to, to search whatever it is, you know, your car, your phone, um, that makes it already an inherently sort of coercive situation. And is that is that a line of legal inquiry that folks have pursued? Like, have there been lawsuits along those lines? By the way, for folks who don't know, I'm a criminologist, and the fact that I don't know the answer to this question <laughs> should be humiliating to me, but I'm just going to run with it. And I'm going to preface this with the fact that I am not a lawyer, although <laughs> I am working with a lawyer on this project. Um, so there have been a lot of, a lot of academics have critiqued this uh reasonable person standard that they have. So basically the question is like, would a reasonable person feel that they were free to leave the situation? And some of these questions have made it all the way up to the Supreme Court. And some of the decisions, uh, when you read them, are really kind of amazing. For example, in one, there's a judge who writes that, you know, if in a bus search, one police officer is walking through, the other one is blocking the front of the bus, right? This is like searching, I believe, um, people for their immigration status. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and in the decision itself, they say clearly people would have known that they could say no to this, right? But in, I mean, if I had a police officer standing in front of me and another one blocking my exit, I would not feel like I could exit the situation or that I could say no in that moment. So there's this clear sort of disconnect, um, but it still seems to be interpreted that way in the courts. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, you would think, I mean, you would think, too, with a bunch of folks, like, if you're in any sort of liminal state in terms of your criminal justice status, that you'd immediately feel like you couldn't. Mm -hmm. say no right mm -hmm. so like if you're on probation and you were asked any sort of question by a police officer you'd certainly feel like 
Yeah. You are compelled to comply. Anyway, okay, yeah. cool. And then the other, I guess the other thing that gets brought up that's a little different from my research is that people don't know that they are, it's within their legal rights to say no. Right. And so there's been a lot of debate about this Miranda for search, like, you know, reading people their rights, you'd read them their rights as well when you're asking them to search and say, you are free to say no. Mm-hmm. Currently, mm-hmm. police officers don't have to do that. Um, but it turns out we actually have some studies where we tell people, you don't have to unlock your phone and give it to us. You'll still get credit for this, but they still do it. Um, and other people have found that as well in actual police context. So it seems like even when people are informed of their rights, they still feel, for whatever reason, that they can't say no. Hmm. Interesting. Um, I now want to go ask a bunch of people if they'll unlock their phones and hand them to me, but... <laughs> Um, that's because I'm sort of a small child. Um, and like the idea of just being like a roving experiment machine on my own, which is, is not part of the scientific method. Um, so, I mean, this is super interesting. Um, and I'm looking forward to your talk even more than I was now. Um, but can, I guess, what are the, I think you've probably touched on these things already, but what are the sort of two or three things that you'd want anybody listening to this to sort of know about the take-home messages from your research, basically? Yeah, for sure. I think there's sort of three key takeaways. One is from your own perspective, when you need something, right? A lot of us think that we shouldn't ask for things because we know we're going to be rejected or because someone's going to judge us harshly for asking. But in fact, that's often how we get the things we need and people are much less likely to judge us and judge us much more positively than we imagine. Um, And they're much more likely to agree to the things we ask. And so if we need something, we shouldn't uh, second guess ourselves and we should just go ahead and ask for it. So that's sort of one. Um, The second is that when we're in the position of asking someone for something, we should also recognize that it's hard for them to say no. So if we're asking them something questionable, something we think might make them feel uncomfortable, if we're asking a coworker out on a date, if we're, you know, just floating the idea that someone maybe do something a little bit unethical, that we should recognize that it's not that someone's going to call us out and say, actually, no, I don't feel comfortable with that, but they're more likely than not to just go along with something. And so to sort of take a little more responsibility for the things we put out there and the pressure we put on Mm. other people. And then I'd say the third major takeaway is when we're judging someone else's behavior from the outside in formal ways, like when we're, you know, a a juror or a judge, um, and in more informal ways, that we should try our best to recognize the coercive power of certain situations because my research suggests that we, we tend to underestimate the extent to which people feel pressured by other people within a situation and the context. Um, and we kind of assume, oh, people are doing things because they want to do that, right? When in fact, often people feel pressured into doing things that they don't want to do necessarily. That's a very good summary. Um, Thank you. I've never been that coherent in my life. (laughs) Um, So I guess one kind of final, um, one kind of final thing, I I guess is if there's sort of one real world change that you could make around this beyond, I think, raising people's general awareness of these issues. Can you, can you think about what that might be? Yeah. I mean, I think one major one is that I think people need to stop making rewards and resources 
contingent on people asking for them. Mm. Because so often, you know, we have open door policies, like professors have open office hours and we just expect people to come and ask for help. Um, As I mentioned, you know, uh, we may give raises to people who ask for them just because they ask for them and not actually think about whether there's people who aren't asking who also deserve a raise and that can create these, um, you know, wage gaps. So I would say if there was one sort of big picture takeaway, it would be to stop making things contingent on people asking for things because people often don't and that doesn't necessarily mean they're less deserving of those things or need help for example um, any less Hmm. I don't have an immediate response to that but I am going to think about it because I do think I mean it's a yeah it's an interesting idea Um, I wish I had something smart to say right away (laughs) but I'm actually looking forward to thinking about that more so um, well Thanks so much for joining us. This is really fun, and I learned a lot, and I'm sure other folks did too. Um, And yeah, I'm looking forward to your talk. Thanks for being willing to do this and the talk. No problem. Thank you so much for having me. It's great. Great. (laughs) For more information about translational research or the work of the Bronfenbrenner Center, please visit www.bctr.cornell.edu.